The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Jeff Wasserstrom, Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine, where he also holds appointments in law and literary journalism. Jeff has published widely, most recently this year, as editor of the Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China and as author of Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies from Mark Twain to Manchuwa. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. It's always a pleasure. As you are a history professor, let's start with a grand historical question. How does history help us to understand the current state of bilateral relations between the U.S. and China? Well, I think history helps us understand things both by being attentive to continuities over a long period of time and also contrasts between the past and the present. And I think there are a lot of um, continuities and also a lot of contrasts. And I'd say the, the really big contrast, getting to that uh, first, is that through most of the time that China and the United States have interacted with each other, the United States has been in the position of worrying about a China that was too weak and worrying about a China that was kind of trapped in backwardness. And now we're in a period where there, the, the deepest concern is about a China that is, that is very strong and that um, is competing with us in all kinds of ways that we used to think of ourselves uh, as, as far ahead in things like technology, in um, economic development and things like that. So it's really striking to me that as recently as the late 1970s, when Deng Xiaoping came to America, he could be greeted by uh, that time very famous American who said, um, Mr. Vice Premier, we wish you and your country uh, the best of luck on your long march to modernization. There was this hoping that China would get stronger and stronger. Uh, that famous American, by the way, wasn't um, Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan. It was John Denver, the musician, who uh, played Rocky Mountain High and Country Roads for um, Deng Xiaoping when he was in America. But just to think about that, to wrap our minds around that kind of um, the fact that now there's this worry about uh, kind of China, China being too strong. Something that's, that's been a continuity in a lot of times, and I'm not sure where it stands right now, is there's often been this hope in the United States that China was only one decade or one good leader away from converting to our ways and kind of converging, whether that was to our religious beliefs or our economic ways or our, um, or our political system. And so I don't know where the state of that is. I mean, that's something that's, that's been persistent. But yet I think there, there, isn't, there isn't that same kind of um, vision of how that could happen now, even to, you know, it's always been a fantasy, but I'm not sure what the state of that fantasy is like right now. I was struck by your word choice when you said the United States was worrying about a weak China. Why was it a worry? Well, in the past, the idea was that um, the, that when people 
when people got emotionally invested in China, there was like a fear. Would China reach a point where it couldn't feed its own population? Would it be, would it, would it be a China that would be broken apart, um, that would fall under the sway of um, uh, it going back in time, that would become absorbed into Japan or would be absorbed by, by Western powers? Uh, the United States was, was sort of, uh, many people in the United States were rooting for a China that would kind of pull its act together and um, become a power in the world. And yet, now that it is a power in the world, it's, it's this, this odd kind of thing is sort of the, um, you know, the United States at some points was saying, when is, when is China going to grow up? When is it gonna tr China going to grow up? And now it's like, how are we going to deal with having another big kid in the block. When is it going to be a responsible stakeholder? When is it going to become a responsible stakeholder? But now we actually have this very strange moment where China is saying to Trump, under your rule, Mr. Trump, will America be a good stakeholder with, with talk about pulling out of the, the climate change agreements? It's a, very, it's a very odd moment to be thinking about these things. Well, that's a very nice segue into the next question, mutual perceptions. President Xi has been in power for a few years, so we can start with him and American perceptions of him. I'm a little troubled at the generalization because there isn't one American view of anything, but you have to start somewhere. So how do you think Americans in general see him and are there differences among different groups of people, the foreign policy elite, the worker in the Rust Belt state, other Americans? Well, I think what's, what's most interesting about this, I think, is to have a certain amount of, there should be a certain amount of humility among China specialists that the discussion about Xi Jinping when he was first, um, first taking power went something like this. Would it, we just see more of the same that we had seen under Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin before? Or would we see, and this is that permanent hope for the sort of China being one leader away for change, would Xi Jinping actually be restarting reform processes that had been under, under Deng Xiaoping? There was a lot of hope in the fact, in some quarters, that his father had been a reformist and that you know he had come to America fairly uh, well before taking power and maybe had I uh, sending his daughter to Harvard and you know maybe there would be this restarting of this opening up process and in fact what we've seen uh, is at least my view and, and a fair number of specialists I think agree with me is that he's been a more um, control oriented leader than China than his than his predecessors um, he's certainly been more colorful than his predecessor but that's um, was pretty easy to do with the colorless Hu Jintao. So I think um, now it's more how concerned people are about this, um, the strongman tendencies that Xi Jinping has and how, um, so it's, it's really shifted the terms of the debate that way. I think a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of Americans, of course, don't have any particular view of him at all. Um, they don't differentiate that much between one leader and another. Um, and there's more of a kind of generalized concern about China than about the particular ways that Xi Jinping is taking it. Um, but I don't, I don't really know, I don't, I don't know many people in the United States who are, have a positive feeling about what Xi, Xi Jinping himself is doing if there's a direction. Mm -hmm. 
Now let's turn to how Chinese perceive our president-elect. Again, are there differences among different groups of Chinese? Yeah, there are differences among different groups of Chinese, and there's a difference between two weeks ago and today. Um, so I think one one enduring pattern, and this is probably true with the way both countries look at the other country, is that sometimes what's admired in the other country is something that's seen as lacking in their own. So there have been periods when Americans have, um, some Americans have gotten fascinated by a China or the East in general that seems to be more in touch with certain spiritual things that we've lost touch with and things like that. But when it comes to Chinese views of America, sometimes what has been admired in American leaders is things that certain Chinese feel is lacking in their own leaders. So there were some, there were some Chinese, of course, who were put off by Trump from the beginning. But there were some others who thought, um, had liked his kind of straight talk, the idea that he said whatever he thought, whereas Chinese leaders tend to very carefully map out what they're going to say. Um, but that's something that two weeks ago, some of the same Chinese were admiring that straight talk two weeks ago. Now that the straight talk, they were kind of nationalistic, but like that straight talk. Now with the straight talk being aimed at, at things they feel are, are um, negative to, to China or sort of uh, offensive, then that straight talk's no longer um, admired. But I, I think um, there were also, of course, there were, there, were, um, there were Chinese intellectuals who didn't like the idea of, of Trump because of his anti-intellectualism or something like that. Um, there were all kinds of different feelings. There were also, as in the United States, the ideas about Trump were bound up in ideas, feelings about Hillary, his, his opponent, and it was clear that, that Hillary was interested in promoting women's rights, which would have appealed to some Chinese, obviously, who would like to see women's rights um, protected in China in a way that they used to be and recently have not been. Um, but there were others who thought that would mean that a Hillary Clinton presidency would be one in which more pressure was being put on China on human rights issues. So there were, uh, of course, many, there was a, a wide kind of divide. And there were people who admired um, Trump because of his simply celebrity status, um, which was something not unique um, to China. But I, I think at the moment, if I went um, back to China now, I was there right before the election, but I think if I went there now, I. Um, I probably would have a hard time finding people who were were pro pro Trump. I mean, at the risk of being a cliche, I did talk to a few different taxi drivers on my first hours in China and got a range of different uh, opinions about um, Trump and about Hillary. One of them was saying, "What's with all the women leaders taking over all around the world?" And how come China doesn't have a female leader? Is there something wrong with Chinese this women? This was a male or female taxi driver. This was a male driver. taxi driver, a male taxi driver. And said, look at South Korea. Well, that's changed. That's, yeah. Look at the US about it. Well, that's changed. So um, all the way around to um, one who just said, oh, I, I like this Trump. He'll, he'll get things done. And that was, that was one, one attitude. You mentioned in passing Chinese nationalism are there parallels between nationalism, populism here and in China? Um, I think here the populism is a turning inward. It's an isolationism, whereas there it may be an outward-looking nationalism. 
what are the consequences or what might be the consequences of this? I think I think you've put your finger on on one contrast. I'd say that in the 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 parallel is that there is um, a sense of returning the country to a previous point of greatness, whatever that is. And in, in the American version, it's a previous period of, in, of um, economics, security, and, and jobs, and things like that. Whereas in, in China, it's, it's partly this idea of returning to a past uh, imagined um, golden age is one of a larger projection beyond its own borders and wider respect. So that's the contrast, which you've put your finger on. But the parallel is, I mean, Xi Jinping's uh, China dream talk, if you parse it, you could say it's really um, make China great again. So there's, there's definitely a parallel to that. And there also is um, parallel in the sense that um, a kind of Chinese nationalism takes for granted that when you talk about China or the Chinese people, even though it's not really everybody living within the country. It's really the Han Chinese majority, and there is a you know there is a definite sense of the bedrock of America being white within um, within Trump's populism. You mentioned a turning point of two weeks ago, which was obviously the phone call between Trump and Tsai Ing-wen, and then more recently the maybe. One China policy is up for negotiation. How does that change the equation between perceptions of the U.S. and China, and not just perceptions, reality going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think what's changed is any notion that whereas uh, Hillary Clinton would have been determined to be an active player in Asia, maybe Trump would be sort of so focused on internal things that he wouldn't uh, be very involved across the Pacific is is now been dashed. I, I'd say the less by the phone call than by the tweets following the phone call that brought up the South China Sea, and then uh, the very recent statements about the one China policy being up for renegotiation or up for grabs. Um, so I think that is that is all a turning point. When it comes to perceptions, though, I would say that there actually have been, we might look back on this period from future history, thinking about shifts in Chinese views of America, going back a little further in the sense that uh, a draining of admiration for the American political system um, and there was a lot of it at different points in Chinese history, admiration for how things were done in America, though sometimes tempered by criticism of it. But I think one thing that took an enormous toll on that kind of what was left of a rosy glow of, of American democracy in the minds of um, at least some Chinese were things like the government shutdowns, which I think, you know, in, in the U.S. it was like, well, those didn't cause that much damage and go on. But actually, you know, the idea that you can't even function was something that, that took a toll. I think the nastiness of the rhetoric during the campaign um, was also something where, I, I mean, I guess one of the things that makes me sad about this, always rooting for uh, a kind of liberalization of some kind within China, not being somebody who expected it to automatically come, but rooting for it, is this just makes it too easy for the Chinese Communist Party to say, look at all the flaws of the alternative systems. And even if you don't like 
even if you think a lot of the heads of the Communist Party are corrupt, or even if you think there are a lot of problems here, like what system's better out there? And that's that's something that, in a way, uh, is one of the things the Communist Party now depends on is being able to say uh, other systems are more prone to chaos or less efficient. And this has just been kind of own goals, one after another. What do you think of what's going on in Hong Kong and how that affects things? Because there's certainly been a lot there. No, there's a lot. And I'm very deeply concerned about it. And I'm also um, so putting on my historian's hat again and thinking about um, the fact that I began by studying student protests, such as the May 4th movement of 1919. One of the things that Hong Kong protesters have been saying in the last couple of years is they've been rejecting, to some extent, being seen purely as Chinese. They're saying, think of us as Hong Kong citizens and, you know, think of us. What they're really saying, I think, is rejecting the interpretation of Chineseness of the Beijing government. And ironically, when I see things like the Umbrella Movement uh, two years ago, I saw a very distinctively Chinese tradition of a cosmopolitan-minded cosmopolitan-minded youth taking to the streets to show love of their community and wanting to have more control over that community's fate, I saw a continuity with the May 4th movement and with the Tiananmen protest. So even while there was an idea of Muslims rejecting Beijing, but not, I think, completely breaking, and in fact, um, embodying some uh, another kind of Chineseness, just as often, I think, in Taiwan recently, We've seen, even while there's an idea of, uh, of some people there wanting to be, you know, more distinguished from from China, that political entity over there, in many ways there are some things that are very um, admirable about the Chinese tradition, broadly defined with multi strands. Strands of the Chinese tradition are more alive in Taiwan than on the mainland. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. I could go on for much longer. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure.